called the Upper Room. It's a pretty important room and space during Holy Week of Easter. Um, you may have seen this painting of the Last Supper. And, of course, that's an artistic rendition in imagination. I don't think they all sat on one side of the table. But that was a nice way to paint it. But the upper room was a special place. And you may recall the peculiar story of how they arrived at the upper room where Jesus um, sent his disciples in to Jerusalem to prepare space for them to celebrate Passover. And so Jesus said, okay, just go into town and you'll see this guy with a jug of water. Just go follow him and he'll take you to a house. And when you get to that house, just say to the owner, hey, where's the room for the teacher, Jesus, to celebrate and eat the Passover meal? And then the owner would show them. So that's the great story of getting to that room, and that's the upper room. And the upper room shows up there where Jesus eats that last supper and where communion is begun and instituted as a sacrament. Also, the upper room is the space where the disciples and others gathered on Holy Saturday and waited. And it's that very room where Jesus, like after resurrection, joins them by just walking into the room without opening the door, which is pretty amazing. And then it's also that room where when um, the Holy Spirit is sent and come down on the followers of Christ like tongues of fire— and it's in that room where that happens. So it's a pretty special place, the upper room. And this morning, I want us to imagine Jesus' disciples gathered in that upper room on Saturday, waiting. You know, they're all together in their sadness and in their grief that Jesus was just crucified. And they're all grieving and processing it differently. Each person working it out in their own way. You know, Jesus had been the unifying factor that brought them together and kept them together as a group. And now without him, what's going to happen? You know, I, you just think about this diverse mix of people in the room who even when Jesus was around and present with them, they would argue amongst themselves. It was just a couple nights before that they, at the Last Supper, were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest among them. So this is a diverse group of people, and now without Jesus to hold them together, what will happen? You know, will they all just go off in their own ways? This morning I want to focus on that 11, that group of 11, and how they're gathered and how they're waiting on Holy Saturday. Think about that 11, this group of men who Jesus picked to be his disciples, the guys he would invest into, and then send out to go to the ends of the earth with the message of the gospel. The kingdom of God is here and now. And so this is a group of people that Jesus knows them best, and they know Jesus best. But here on Holy Saturday, this group of people, without their leader anymore, probably seemed like a crazy assortment of personalities. So if we just run through the list of these 11 disciples— um, in the room on Saturday. Begin with Peter. Think about Peter first. He's probably the well-known guy. But Peter, I would imagine him over in the side of the room, and he was unconsolable in his grief. You know, he was the one who denied Jesus three times and just probably felt just the horror of what he did and now the situation. 
Think about Peter's brother, Andrew. I think Andrew might have been the guy who was still trying to hold the group together. You know, he was the guy who was relationally connecting and keeping people there. He was the glue that still kept them and kept them going together. Then we have James and John, two more brothers. And maybe James and John are just thinking, ah, maybe our blood brotherness is way more important than this brother thing that Jesus taught about in this family of God. Maybe they were processing that. We had Doubting Thomas in the room. Think about what was Doubting Thomas doing on Saturday. You know, it was only just a little bit of time before that Thomas was willing to die for Jesus. So was it there on that holy Saturday when things were unwinding and he was just unhinged and now he's wondering and doubting? And his commitment is in question. Also, Matthew is there. Matthew used to be a tax collector. What is Matthew doing while he's waiting? Is he out, like, figuring out the finances, gathering up the resources? Okay, how are we going to make it? We don't have Jesus anymore. And he's just digging into the details of that. We also had Simon the Zealot who his career before Jesus was as a political activist, a revolutionary political activist. What was he doing? Was he like regathering his network, trying to see how they can leverage the excitement of this moment to make something happen? And then <laughs> you have Philip and Bartholomew, James the Less and Thaddeus. Four more people that are there, but we don't know much about them which is fascinating. The people that were with Jesus for three years, his closest friends who knew Jesus best and who Jesus knew the best, and we don't know much about them. It's fascinating to think about those guys as well. Well, as you're imagining this group of disciples gathered in the upper room and <clears throat> asking the question, how are they waiting it's an opportunity for us also to ask ourselves, how do we wait? You know, what kind of waiter are you? You know, when the proverbial rug is pulled out from under you and you find yourself in this moment of stress and waiting with an unknown ahead, how do you wait? Now, I was talking to someone yesterday who answered this question because it was in the e-news. He said, how do I wait? impatiently. Impatiently. Just want to take action, want to move, want to do something, not wait. Maybe you can relate to that. Or maybe you can relate to when waiting, your mind just activates in this crazy way where it's just spinning with ideas and assessing the situation and coming up with possible solutions and just like going crazy in your head. Or maybe you can associate more with like Drilling down into the details, gathering the resources and the information and having it and figuring it out and then making a decision how to go forward. But how do you wait? Well, this morning I want to introduce you, if you don't already know it, to the CVI, the Core Values Index, which was developed by Lynn Taylor. And why do I want to introduce this to you? Because I think that understanding something about ourselves, our innate selves, 
the motivational drivers within us help us understand how we wait. And there's a possibility that we can also understand how other people wait and that they might wait differently than we do. So the CVI assessment, which you can go online, and I think it's in the program if you want to find that, and take that assessment and they'll help you figure out who you are. But the assessment helps identify your motivational drivers. What is your core value that you are living from? It's inscribed into your very nature. It's innate. Here's what Taylor claims about the CVI. Taylor claims that the core values index is the most powerful human nature assessment ever developed. So that's pretty powerful. It's the most powerful human nature assessment ever developed, helping you identify these core values in you. And that's connected, of course, to what Abraham Maslow talked about in this innateness within us. And here's what Maslow wrote. We have, each one of us, an essential inner nature, which is instinctive, intrinsic, given, natural, in other words, with an appreciable hereditary de determinant and which tends to strongly persist. This core shows itself as natural inclinations, propensities, or inner bent. That authenticate selfhood, that authentic selfhood can be defined in part by knowing what one is fit for and not fit for. So you think about this innateness in you, these natural inclinations. You know, we just sang that great song, and I wrote down the line, made by you, made for you. This thing that God made you, he knit you together in your mother's womb in a particular way, giving you these core drivers. Seems helpful to understand that in ourself and then how we approach God because of that. All right, so how does this CVI work? Basically, you take the assessment, and the assessment puts you into one of four categories, one of four values. Banker, builder, merchant, and innovator. Banker, builder, merchant, innovator. And here's the description that is in a quick way that Taylor writes. Builders take action and create results. Merchants develop relationships and inspire others with their visions of opportunity and promise. Innovators assess situations and solve problems, and bankers garner all important information and manage resources, ensuring the safety of their societies. A little description helping you understand a little bit more. I personally, when I take the assessment and I affirm it by my own like, experience, that I'm an innovator. So here's my little chart, and you can see innovator, the purple on the bottom, is big. It's way over there. And then in second place, in percentages, is merchant. And then over there, builder, I'm a little builder. And then a little wee banker. That's who I am. It's a little bit about me. You know, I actually, this is off topic, but I've been thinking about my dad lately, and my dad passed away six years ago, and how different my dad and I were. And I look at my innovator, and my just, like, approach to life was very different than his banker approach to life. And I just think about these funny things, like, you know, my dad had, like, this perfect typewriter handwriting. Some of you have seen my handwriting. Maybe some have even argued that it's not even writing. 
because I'm an innovator, just creating new language. You know, my dad, he would mow the grass in this, like, pattern. And he try, I remember him trying to teach me how to mow the grass in this pattern kind of crazy way. And, well, no, not crazy, orderly way. And then my innovator, do you know how I mowed the grass? I just drove around with the lawnmower until it was all shorter. <laughs> just the differences of people, right? And so I really appreciate that difference between myself and my dad. All right, so again, here's the categories. Builder, those are about people who are about action and results. Merchants, people who are about relationship and vision. Innovator, people who are about assessment and solutions. Banker, people who are about conservation and information. I like the way Taylor sets this up to help us imagine this using the idea of a village. You think about, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago, a village of people gathered, and they're living together and figuring out life together and surviving. And they're in that village require all four of these kind of people, these four values within people. And here's what um, he says. This is a great illustration. So he says, After the builders in the earliest societies brought home the elephant to feed their village... After the merchants told the stories of valor and brilliant strategy, after the innovators worked tenaciously to develop new weapons to better protect and feed their people, the bankers went out into the dark, gathered the hot, breathing coals into the center of the fire pit. They covered them with ashes and laid large logs around the precious embers, banking the fire for the next day's use. Everybody is needed in the society. So as you think about yourself, what category might you fit in? Just getting the general descriptions of them and understanding that you are made up of a combination of percentages of all four. You function from all four areas, but is there a primary home where you most often live from in your motivational driver? Well, if we go back to our 11 disciples waiting in the upper room and think about them and the CVI, think about them, the, the thing that God made them to be as individuals and what they brought to waiting. I want to just look at a couple of them and talk about their core value and how they brought that to their waiting. First, we have Peter. Again, Peter. I'm pretty sure Peter was a builder. He took action, <laughs> he got results, and he didn't think too much about it. If you read the stories about Peter, you just know that that's true, that he um, was a builder, and a key aspect for builders is faith. He just believed. He's like, yes, this, I believe this, we can do this, let's just go and get it done. Faith drove him. And so you see Peter living out that faith when Jesus comes walking across the water out to the boat. And what does Peter do? Of course, he hops out of the boat and starts walking on the water too. Until, <laughs> until he starts thinking. And then he's like, ah, I can't walk on water. This is not natural. And then he sinks, right? But his first inclination was faith, to take action, to move toward Jesus. You know, Peter is also the disciple who when um, the Roman guard and the Jewish leaders were coming to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. You know, they're coming, and what does Peter do? You know, he does what we expect him to do. He takes action. He's going to figure out, make, take action to get a result. 
So he pulls out a sword and chops off an ear. Maybe he wasn't intending to chop off an ear, but that's the best he could do. He took action. He didn't think it through. You know, and this is the same Peter who, when the Holy Spirit came down on the 120, and now the crowds around are like, what is going on? It is Peter, the builder, who has this faith that says, oh, I know enough to talk about Jesus, and I'm going to speak. And he speaks, boldly stepping out. Peter is a builder. Peter's brother, Andrew, I think he was a merchant. You know, in all these stories we have of Andrew, every time it seems like Andrew is bringing someone to Jesus. So we see that in the beginning, right away, that Andrew brings his older brother, Peter, to Jesus. You know, for Andrew, it's about truth. He's like, I, this Jesus is truth. And he's going to tell everybody about it and bring everybody in to point to Jesus. You know, in another story, when Jesus, you know, is around this crowd that's hungry, and, and he says to the disciples, hey, you guys feed these 5,000. They're like, what? How are we going to feed 5,000 people? We don't have money for that. Well, it's Andrew who brings the boy with the five loaves and two fishes to Jesus. So I just imagine Andrew in all these scenes with Jesus, where he's just kind of standing on the outskirts, not like right next to Jesus, but he's over with the people, and he's accessible. People come up to him and talk to him and interact with him, and then he brings them to Jesus. He's the merchant. And then the innovator. I think John was an innovator. You know, John and his older brother James, they were nicknamed by Jesus the Boanerges, the sons of thunder. That's pretty awesome because I think they had these big personalities and they had these big ideas. And they just lived in that space. And Jesus identified that and saw that in them. Here's one insightful story about John and James. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus, in his kind gentleness, says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they respond, yes, we can. They had this big idea of life. They assessed things and they said, the solution is for us to be at your right and left, Jesus. We are your best choice. You know, John had this innate sense of wisdom. You know, he, he could identify things and just see clearly. And we see that in his writing. As he would write in the Gospels, we would see how he would, like, pull these big ideas together and help us understand these huge things. And we see this theme of love everywhere around John, that he's just pulling that in together. All right. Banker. Who do you think was the banker? The obvious choice would be Matthew. Because Matthew, he was a tax collector before, right? He was the guy who had the sharp pencil and was into details and following through in the details and just diving in there. And we see that's true. I think in Matthew's writing of his gospel, you can see that he's, he's like innately drawn to knowledge and information. So he wants to tell you about Jesus' life, what you need to know and understand. 
He's going to take these Old Testament prophecies and connect them to Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled them. He was in the details of Jesus' life, and that comes through in his writing. But I think there's another choice for banker amongst that 11. I think Thomas could have been a banker. You know, Thomas is best known, of course, for being doubting Thomas for good reason. Here's what he said. He said when, like, people said, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's like, I won't believe it unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Thomas, he needed to know for himself He needed it to be based on information, on the facts. He needed to test and prove in order to know. And once he knew, his confidence and his commitment was huge. You know, he had this innate sense of knowledge. And that knowledge led him to be confident in his commitment. You think about Thomas just some time before when Jesus and the disciples were going to go see Lazarus who had died. And all the disciples are very fearful that Jesus is also going to get killed if he goes and sees Lazarus. It's like a trap. But Thomas, he had assessed the information. He, you know, looked at the data, and he made the decision and the commitment that he was with Jesus, and he's going to go with Jesus, no matter what, even if he had to die. So in that scene as they're going, here's what Thomas says to the group. Let us also go, that we may die with him. He was committed because he had based it on his, the facts that he had gathered and knew. And now he was moving forward committed. Well, in just these few minutes of learning about the core value um, index and these four categories, are you getting a sense of where you might fit in, like where home base might be for you? Beginning to think about how this affects how you wait and what you do in waiting? You know, to begin to identify in yourself your motivational driver of life, that you just do this out of an innate way. And you go that way because it was created in you by God. Well, my hope this morning as we talk about the CVI is a few things. First, I hope that as you consider this, um, these values in your own life, that you would understand yourself more and be able to bring yourself to God in that way. You don't have to be somebody else or approach God in some other way. But if you are a banker and you just need to be in the details, that is how you come to God also. And that is okay. And if you're an innovator like me and you've got a million ideas, that's okay too. You don't have to like squish down into a box. And second, I hope that the CVI helps you to look around and see other people. And know that other people can be different. That's okay too that the way they are processing and waiting and going through stress is a different way than you, and it's okay. And you can understand them better because of it. But third, I hope that the CVI helps you not go crazy in a stressful waiting moment. So you don't go crazy. Do you know how this happens sometimes? That we just take this thing that we're good at, and we just like drill down and make it too much. You think about all these four values. Each one is a powerful thing. And as you live that out in your life, that's the gift you're giving to the world. 
You know, if you are a builder, you're going to take action. The world needs you to take action and move things forward. It's good. But under stress, when you're waiting, when that rug gets pulled out from under you, how about in those moments? Do you go crazy in your strength, or do you hold it open? Let's think about a few of our examples here and how they might have gone too far with their value. So a builder, how can a builder go too far? I think it's kind of easy. Peter is very clear. It's too far, Peter, when you pull out the sword and chop off the ear. That was you taking action and just going a little bit too far. And I love Jesus responding to Peter because he puts the ear back on and he just, he's like, Peter, I know that's how you are. That's why I love you. And I know that you're going to do great things because you do such crazy things. But you need to pull it back sometimes. And a great word for builders when they're going too far is bulldozer. You know, bulldozer just like pushing over people and getting things done, leaving a wake behind them. How about merchants? How can merchants go too far? I think we didn't even mention Judas Iscariot because he was not at the last, he was not there on Holy Saturday. He was at the Last Supper. But think about Judas Iscariot. I think he might have been a merchant. And he cared a lot. And he cared about the vision that Jesus had. And he was bought in and wanted that vision. But he didn't see it happening fast enough or in the way he expected it. And so he took action on his own. And he, he became manipulative in what he did to make something happen. Thinking about that merchant trying to make something happen on his own. And he went too far. You know, how can an innovator go too far? Again, I think it's easy to look at James and John and they're like asking Jesus, hey, can we sit at your right and left in glory? Maybe that was too far, guys. You're asking too much. Let Jesus decide that. Maybe I can imagine for John having such big ideas and just swimming around in them that at times he could get bogged down in so many ideas that it was hard for him to take action, hard for him to move. And ideas became too much for him. And how about bankers? How can they go too far? Again, here we think about Thomas asking this audacious thing. I won't believe until I stick my finger into the holes. That's pretty audacious. But he needed that kind of detail. But Jesus, again, responds so graciously to him. Jesus says, hey, Thomas, here I am. You know, if you need to, put your finger in there. But I'm here. And because of that, because Jesus met him where he was at, giving him the detail and the, like, minutia that he needed, that, that gave Thomas the confidence to move forward in his faith, to go and go to the ends of the earth to bring the kingdom of God. So how do you wait you know, if you're identifying with one of these four core values, in that, how do you wait? What is your kind of motivational tendency? What's innate in you? And how do you use that in strength? But also to ask the question, when you're in that stressful moment and you're tempted to go too far, what do you need to do to tame down that motivational driver? 
you know, to bring yourself to a place of quiet and calm and listening before God. I mean, isn't that the, the invitation of God when we're waiting? God invites us to come, be still, and know that I'm God. You got to do some work in your own self to, like, quiet things down, to come, be still, and know that I am God. That's our invitation as we head into Easter, just a couple weeks away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the unique way you've created each of us with a unique mix of each of these four core values. I pray that we would know ourselves in order to bring ourselves fully to you. And God, that we would be able to see others and appreciate others and give them the grace that you give us in meeting us exactly where we are at. I pray as we wait that we would bring ourselves to you to be still and to know that you are God. Lead us into that. Amen.